cookbook making can be so obtuse. There's so much you don't know until you find it out by trial and error. I think of the people who reached down to me when I was coming up and helped me navigate. And it was such a generous, welcoming part of this profession. It made me want to pay it forward. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I welcome Molly Stevens into the studio. Molly is a cookbook author behind the All About Trilogy. That would be all about braising, all about roasting, and all about dinner, three books that are essential in your collection. Molly is also a food educator and one of the co-hosts of an amazing podcast, Everything Cookbooks. I love it so much and highly recommend it. This is a really fun talk, and I hope you enjoy it. Molly Stevens, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. So, Molly, I wanted to ask you on the show because your 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 all about series of cookbooks have been um, inf- influential to anyone who writes cookbooks. So, thank you for that. Just wanted to say from the top. Well, thank you. And I want to know um, just a little bit of the story about how about uh, how all about braising came about. Like, is there a a real genesis story for the series? Did it start as an idea of a series, or did you start with one? It did not start as an idea of a series. It started as one. It started with me wanting to write my first solo cookbook. I'd been sort of in. I'd, where I'd co-authored a book, I did a work for hire, I'd been doing a bunch of magazine work, but mm-hmm. I was really still, I left my, I was a full-time teacher sort of at a culinary college mm-hmm. for years, and so I'd left that and I was getting into the freelance world, mm-hmm. and I um, had done a bunch of work on that Joy of Cooking, the, the massive redo that Marina Maria Guarnaschelli did, yeah. did in, I want to say late 90s, was mm-hmm. it, 98? And she hired me to work on that towards the very end of it. And um, it was quite a wild ride. But um, through that, I met Maria Gornichelli, started working with her, and we got to talking when that was done that maybe it was time for me to do a book. And so I really sat down with, okay, I have this editor who's interested in my work. What would I write a book on? Mm -hmm. And it really started there. And the braising idea came out because I really, as a teacher, cooking teacher, I really wanted this notion that if you can teach someone a technique— that they can really master, then they're off and running and they don't need the recipes. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. They don't need the book. I mean, I often say that the the thing about that book and and the All About Roasting that followed, um, you read the introduction and you really don't need the recipes that follow. I mean, if you absorb it. So so the idea, so braising, I love braising. That was the first genesis. Mm -hmm. And then there, I looked around and there weren't any books solely devoted to braising. Mm -hmm. There were stewing books and um, I think it's, I was it? I'm trying to think of – anyway, some great books that were sort of slow-cooked, stewing, slow-roasting, mm-hmm. but none that was just braising. And the word wasn't really – I mean, chefs knew it. Yeah. But it wasn't really common parlance. Definitely not. And so I'm like, well, maybe that's an idea. <laughs> and so that's that's what we did. I mean, there was braised short ribs, right? Oh, and yeah. That was like the one that chefs – I feel like that was the introduction of the term braising. Yeah, but chefs – I mean, chefs have been braising all along. Of I mean, it's a super oh, – that was the cool thing about working on that book is I started doing – I mean, my 
culinary training, if it were, um, is pretty informal, but it was basically European-based, right, yeah. Western world. And so when I started the book, I'm like, okay, there's no way the French invited, invented the braise. And so I looked all over the world and had a fabulous time. I went down to the Schlesinger Library in Radcliffe mm-hmm. and actually hired a re- someone to help me do research and just came up with old, old recipes from all over the world. So that was super. Do you feel through your research there was an actual, um, like, place where braising, a culture where braising began? Is that is that possible to say? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it requires fuel. That's the thing. Sure. So it has to be a culture that can have a, a fire going. Yeah. But anybody had a – I mean, they were braising. You know, you're braising by putting some – the word comes from the French word for – embers for coals mm-hmm. in the fire. So anybody who's burying a pot yeah. into the coals of fire and cooking something in its own juices. Mm-hmm. It's Which braising. is the definition of braising, exactly. right? Adding exactly. liquid to yes. something else and yes. cooking it in its, that liquid, right? Yeah. And the French threw in after browning, but not all cultures brown first. Some people, just, sometimes you just put it in a pot and mm-hmm. let it go. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to Maria Gornicelli because I feel like we talk about her a little bit on the show and, and I think she, you know, she passed recently and, you know, we did uh, a bit of a tribute to her, a re- recognition of her. But how, what was it like working with Maria Gornicelli, legendary editor in the game, was it um, as um, tenuous as I would imagine? <laughs> you know, when I started working with her, I didn't really know who she was. I mean, I, I knew who she was. She was my editor. But I didn't quite absorb the full impact of, you know, who she was in the food world and what she had done and how many books she had ushered forth. Um, it was it was a wild lesson. I mean, an incredible lesson. She, she taught me so much about how a cookbook goes together mm-hmm. um, and – it, she worked, I mean, the only person who worked harder than I did on that book, no, as hard as I did, how, how do I say this? Mm-hmm. No, I worked harder than she did, but she cared about that book so much. Mm-hmm. She just, I, I, I've worked with other editors and, you know, I've had wonderful experience with them, but Maria just took it to a next level. She was just so intense and um, I was talking to a friend actually yesterday about it and she said, you know, well, the thing with Maria, if you didn't do your homework, she let you know it. Yeah. So she expected a lot. And I rose to that. I, you know, I miss school. I like being in school. I like the challenge. And um, for me, it was always about the work with her. I mean, I knew when she was pushing hard, because she would push very hard. Mm-hmm. It was about the work. It wasn't about me. She Pe- pushed, it wasn't petty. It was actually to no. make a great book. She, she wanted is. the best book. She wanted yeah, the best yeah. book she could get out of me. Yeah. And and. Uh, you went on to write a book about roasting, all about roasting. And I feel like you wrote about all about cooking, right, essentially? The the third one that, that came out in 2019 was all about, about dinner. dinner. Sorry, yes. all about dinner. It's and all cooking, of course, it, but all about dinner. It's interesting. Those those titles – now, All About Braising was not the working title. It was not <laughs> the title that I, I – I don't know if I could have written a book with that hanging over my head thinking I was writing All About yeah. Braising. And the way I come to term with those – with that title is that it's not – everything there is to be said about braising, roasting, dinner. It means this book is solely about braising. Yeah. Because when I wrote the manuscript for each one of the the braising, the single subject ones, I had desserts in there, I had salads in there, and then when it came down to what it was really about, it's like, no, it's really just about this technique. Mm -hmm. And then when I did the dinner one, which is a a truly general book and my most personal book in in terms Mm -hmm. of um, it just represents how I cook at home, Mm -hmm. I wanted to shed that title because it it isn't a single – technique book where you read the introduction and you can just go. Um, you would have called it dinner if it was your... I would have called it dinner. Yeah, if it was your opinion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and but, you know, 
publishers, yeah. the brand is a brand, and they thought it. So I'm fine with it. It's it's a nice, and it is all about dinner. All the yeah. all the recipes are meant for dinner. I so. love it. Okay, so I have to ask you, Molly. You know, you're writing when you're writing a cookbook. Do you always have a sense of deadline? Is there always that that tick 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 sound in the back of your head? Or, you know, given that you've done this for a little bit, are you pretty zen and chill about it or or not? Like, I have to ask you. Both. Both. I don't – I would never describe my work mode as zen and chill. <laughs> <laughs> and, in <laughs> fact, the the second book – and I'm, I think many authors will say this if they have a first book that – I mean, the first one, and you asked at the top of the show, you know, did I did I envision a series? I was just so thrilled to be able to write a book that mm-hmm. was going to be my book. Mm-hmm. And I did not envision a second one. And the first one, you know, it landed well. People reacted to it pretty po- much more positively than I expected. And so then the pressure to do the second one just nearly crushed me. Oh, wow. Just like a fo- like following up and making it as— as successful and robust as yeah, the first and, and, one. Yeah, and I mean, I felt like it's funny the way the Brazing book, I really never— I still don't understand that, 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 I mean, you know, there's some people who just are love it. I mean, rapidly love it. I mean, sort of, you know, groups yeah. of people. And and I didn't want to disappoint those people. I wanted to give something that was, you know, mm-hmm. as weighty, as meaningful, as helpful. So, um, so the thing about deadlines with cookbooks, too, especially, um, is that it, if you miss a deadline, you're back six months or more likely a year, right? Because... Mm-hmm cookbooks, as you know, they come out certain seasons. And so, um, and then the other thing I think it's like with any creative process, it's never done. Yeah. It's never perfect. So it's a combination and it's, um, I, I, I like to work hard, but I, I've missed a few deadlines. I have to say, yeah, I really have, because it's just, sometimes it's too much. It's over, I get overwhelmed by it. Well, you speak about missing deadlines and your world, your world as a cookbook writer, author, recipe developer on the absolutely incredible podcast, Everything Cookbooks. Oh. Molly, I, uh, early in an episode, um, Ann and I were talking about things we like, and I, I had to mention this show right away because as someone who writes cookbooks and is in this world, I find this show to be everything you need to write a cookbook. It is so good. So thank you for doing it first. Oh, well, thank you for listening, and that means so much coming from you because mutual. I mean, I'm a huge fan of this podcast too, so it's a thrill to be on. Well, thanks, and and I'd have to say, like, you know, you are very honest with your, your, with your co-host, and we'll, we'll hopefully have – all of your co-hosts on the show at some point on the Taste Podcast. But did you feel when you were putting together this idea for a podcast, Everything Cookbooks, that you needed to do – you needed to have a goal? Like did you did you think of this as like a document that future cookbook writers will will go to? Or was it just something that you wanted to do because you've been Zooming all together with, with, your, with, these, with these three other wonderful cookbook writers? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I want to go on record by saying you should not miss your deadlines. It's a really bad practice, <laughs> and I do not recommend it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I never took that at you as a big deadline misser person. No, and but. I, I don't miss short-term deadlines. Yeah. I just With big books, I have had some trouble sometimes. I, so just, We call it pushing back. Yeah, and We're it just pushing back, back to the release date. It, and it, it's not missing a deadline. It's the work isn't where it needs to be for me to turn it in. That's what's happening. Truly, and yes, sometimes yes. you make new discoveries <laughs> that are, there's bumps in the road. I'm, I'm facing a deadline myself in a year and it's it's you know it's tough like you don't know if you're what you're gonna find no. you don't know what you don't know right and, and also life happens and cookbooks yeah, yeah. the you know 
big ones or anyone. It's a, it's a big endeavor and sometimes things get in the way. It's anyway. So back <laughs> to the podcast, everything cookbooks. Um, you know, when we set out to do it, it, as, as you know, and we've said on the cat, the, the show that we've, uh, Andrew Nguyen, Kristen Donnelly, Kate Leahy, and I have been meeting via, it was before Zoom, via Google Meet once a month, just as a hmm. group of, we were professional colleagues before and we've become friends over the years. And for five, six years, we've been doing this. And I think what it is, is that writing cookbooks is such a, can be such a solitary profession. And you're out there. I mean, I live in northern Vermont, so it gets mm-hmm. really solitary. Mm-hmm. And a freelance lifestyle. And it, yeah, you have your editor, you have the, your your agent, maybe you, you know. But y- you don't really have people you can bounce stuff around yeah. with necessarily. And you know, <laughs> domestic people, <laughs> people you live with, might not want to hear about it. So we just felt it's it's given us so much to have a sort of professional support peer group, mm-hmm. and we just wanted to. I think cookbook making can be so obtuse and so there's so much you don't know until you find it out by, you know, trial and error. And I think of the people who reached down to me when I was coming up and helped me navigate my way. And it meant everything. And I can, I remember, you know, almost every instance of that. And it was such a generous and welcoming part of, of, this profession, and I just it made mm-hmm. me want to, you know, share what I know with other people, and you know, what do they say? Pay it forward. I mean, it just really, yeah. it, it doesn't hurt anybody to share the information. There are no secrets. Yeah, I, I think it's it's true. There is no rough guide to writing a cookbook. Your agent, I guess, would maybe be one person who could help you, but they kind of aren't as plugged in as the actual author. But I want to ask you when you and Andrea and Kristen and Kate would get on these zooms. Like or whatever chats or phone calls like three years ago, what would it be like? Like I'm really curious because I know all your work and I know a couple of you like personally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's it like? What's one? What's the dynamic of this like of this group? So it varies, and there have been a few other people who, over the years who have come in and out, but the four of us have really been the the constant. And you know, some months it'll be someone has just had an offer to do a work for hire, and they're not sure. Does this sound right? Does mm-hmm. this sound you know worth my while? Um, something so sometimes it would be something as very specific as an opportunity. Other times, you know, I mean, there's a lot that's happened in the news and our, you know, in, in food media over the years. We'll talk about what's going on, what's our take on it, mm-hmm. what do we think about it. We'll talk about new books, cookbooks that excite us, old cookbooks. Um, really, a lot of what we talk about on the show is just it's it's not it's not gossipy. It's just a way to talk about and. Um, and navigate because it's so, you know, there's, it's so noisy out there like on Twitter and, um, you know, on social media and it can be really easy to, to go into those, you know, rabbit holes of negativity and, and to try to figure out what do I think about this? You know, where do I, um, you know, there's so much piling on and, and so we've had a lot of time to just sort of like step back and, and it's, it's nice because, Two of us are on the East Coast. Two are on the West Coast. Our work is different. We all It's clear your work is different. That's why it's so fascinating. And I had no idea that the four of you knew each other. But I knew of your work or of you of all four. And, and if Kristen and Andrea have written for Taste. Yeah, right. But you're very different, and which I, makes it so cool. And that's what makes it cool. And we also yeah. – I'm like the elder statesman in the group. You know, we have these <laughs> different perspectives because we're at different points in our yeah. career um, and bring different 
skill sets to it and different perspectives. So yeah. it's been a super positive and, and this podcast thing. I well, Kristen had done a plant podcast. Oh, okay. Last. I think last year she was doing – she's really into gardening and plants and herbal plants and – herbal plants. That's not – anyways. Yeah, herbs um, and plants, herbs we'll and say. Plants. Herbs slash plants. Sure. So she had a little podcast experience and and when they suggested I was like, that's crazy. I'm not going to do a podcast. But yeah. it's – it's been, I mean, not just fun, learning so much. You each have your own kind of vibe. I liked your story about organization and recipe development, and you um, have a method. And I think it was cool. I wanted you to share it with our listeners as well. But you, for every recipe that you develop, you have a plastic sleeve. Yeah. Um, so this is cool because, like, when I'm developing recipes or working with a chef, I'm usually working in Google Docs. I'm yeah. a little more digital. Yeah. But, like, how does this work for you? How What's the process with these sleeves? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it feels very old school now, and I wonder if, if I you know, obviously, you know, I developed it before we had Google Docs, but yeah. um, so it's a basic sheet protector, plastic sleeve, and I have notebooks that they go in, and it starts with the first time. For me, I generally start in the kitchen. I sometimes I'll have typed up something, or I'll have torn out a idea from a magazine or a newspaper mm-hmm. of something, or a restaurant menu, you know, something that's inspired the dish. So whatever, if I have that document, that goes in. But it's generally the notes that were in my notebook or I I tend to work on a lot of scrap paper, which is not always a good thing. But it's my my kitchen notes. Um, Then it's the first time I typed up the recipe. Um, They're often on some of my kitchen notes. I like tear the, if it's protein, I'll tear the, the tear, the weight, and price off of it and put it down. So, not so smart know how having that source material. It's very smart. I know it. So it's anything that, or it's research. If I if I did a bunch of research on this recipe, um, it's anything relates to that recipe. Yeah. And then anytime I you know type it up, re-edit it, that goes in there. Um, when I send it out to my recipe testers, I have a recipe testing worksheet that they all work of. So that goes in there. So these things get pretty fat by the time a mm-hmm. recipe is. And this is, is for a single recipe, and sometimes these books have over 150 recipes. Yes. So you have 150 sleeves for one of your cookbooks. Yes. I love it. That's yeah. so smart, and I think it really shows our listeners what goes into making a cookbook. Let's step back for a second and say, let's go to that moment where you actually are in the field, and you're like looking at a restaurant. So take me what's in your, going through your brain when you're thinking about developing a recipe at that source. Like, I'm curious, like, do you think about how can I put my own original spin on it, of course? Are you thinking about how does this actually work? Like, I'm. that's like the part that is always a little mysterious to me is like, what how do you translate something you see in the field or taste in the field to a recipe? Um, trying to think of a specific example. Um, I mean, there was, you know, there's this cabbage recipe in the All About Braising book. And it's the simplest recipe, and it's the only probably recipe title that I don't care for, but <laughs> we could talk about that another time. But um, it was a restaurant dish that was just this cabbage that was just so, like, just silky and I'm not going to say unctuous because I know it's banned at taste. Um, <laughs> you know you listen to the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> no, I hate that word. I have another story about that it's word. Banned. But it was just so it's banned. just soft and silky and filled with flavor and any, you know, some people get turned off by cabbage. There's nothing but sweetness and tenderness for this cabbage. And um, I was like, this just seems braised to me. You know, how is this, how did this come to be? And it was just a side dish. And I was like, this is, this is more than 
just this thing sitting next to this mm-hmm. pork chop. This could be a whole thing. A main, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so then it just came to playing with the cabbage and trying to figure out a way to do it so it wasn't shredded. I think the one that I tasted was shredded and I wanted something that was big, you know, chunkier. So I did wedges and just sort mm-hmm. of playing around. And then I was really into pushing the times um, when I was working on the book at that point, like how long could it, so it's a full three hour braise that you could yeah. shorten by turning it up. But it just, and then, and it, um, at the end I want a little something more. So I think I finished it with a little bit of vinegar. So it's, I don't know if that's – I don't really know if I'd answer your you question. You did answer okay. it because I okay. think you're talking about hard like source materials. You went to the restaurant. You, you saw this side dish. You went to your kitchen. You pulled out a, a cabbage. A, a, a What kind of cabbage? Like a – Just a straight-up green, green supermarket green cabbage, yeah. green cabbage, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then you started actually playing around with temperature. So do you do – how do you actually go and – and and test different times. You just you have to. You obviously you start over and you do it like two hours. You start in, in or you go longer. Yeah, you go. Yeah, you you and um, y- yes, you start over. You go longer. Um, I have two ovens that I you know use side by side a lot. Yep. Um, I'll put some you know next to it, pull it. You know, do three at a time and pull one out and see if I think that sort of thing. So yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah. So I uh, we could go over these binders. I feel all day. Like we could have a whole episode. <laughs> I still your... have them all too. I keep them because as you should. Well, Amazing. I mean, we I've told this story on the podcast, but you know sometimes something gets lost in translation or, you know, yeah. in editing. And there's so many layers of editing. And sometimes things get dropped off of recipes or maybe the author forgot to put it in there and it get, doesn't get caught. So having all that information in the binder, you know, hopefully you can go back and go, oh, it really was 20 minutes it was supposed to cook for. You know, I wrote it down Yeah, somewhere. it was really there. Yeah. So I have to ask then, so when does cooking feel like work? And mm. when does cooking feel like fun? I mean, how do you know how to separate it? Because, you know, you're writing books all the time and you're working on recipes for magazines all the time. How can you separate Yeah, it's two? that's really hard. And I think every cookbook author, oh, I don't know, but... I, <laughs> many. <laughs> many. I mean, I like to turn recipe tests into dinner or lunch or, for, you know, to eat it because yeah. I abhor, wa- abhor waste. And so... Um, when it's fun, it's funny. I was just working on a recipe last night um, for it's a a pork and tamale stew. You know, not revolutionary, but mm. wonderful, and it worked out. And I'm what I did is I started it early because I. But what when it's when it's a chore when it's not fun is when I'm working sort of later in the afternoon and it's getting to be dinner time and it's not turning out and I'm so mad because yeah. one. It's not done. I need to go back and start all over again or, you know, do it again. Um, but two, even, I'm, you know, it's usually edible, but it ruins dinner because I'm not happy because I'm like, uh, and, you know, my husband will be like, this is delicious. I'm like, shut up. It's not delicious. It's not right, you know? I feel like I, I, I have the conversation with my wife tomorrow often. Like, it's not great yeah. tomorrow. And she's like being nice and is like, oh, it's taste. No. Exactly. So we've learned, you know, he's learned to say, is this a test or is this a development you know <laughs> before great. he comments on dinner so so i've learned to uh when i'm really in the thick of it i just bite the bullet and do the testing in the morning you know d- do it away from the dinner hour don't do it at family time when it's you know it's the evening when people are having a glass of wine and looking forward to social time like when i know i'm coming up against something that's not automatic do it separately and if 
it works, that's great. Yeah. I, I know how to reheat. You know, yeah, I, yeah, can, totally. I can turn it into dinner later on. I like the idea of, of testing early. I, I do it myself because I feel like it's like a work-life balance thing. If you're like cooking, if you're writing in the day and then you're testing at night, yeah. it gets a little And crazy. when it co- becomes joy, I mean, I love it. It's you know, all about dinner. That's what that book is about. For me, mm-hmm. that time of day when – and I, you know, I heard Ali Slagle was on your – and she talked about it and you know, her new book is so tremendous. And yeah. But that, that time of day when you, know, you hear the chop-chop my, – my dog, if she hears <laughs> chop-chop – for the carrots or the onion, <laughs> she comes running because she knows that her dinner's not far behind. I mean, it's the time it's when so good. family happens, you know, maybe have a glass of wine, whatever, just turn on some music, and that's what it... And so if you try to do too much recipe testing work at that time of day, you can yeah. take some of the joy out of it. Do you ever get the cooking blahs that, like, I feel everyone gets? We all... I mean, especially these past few years. Yeah, like, sure. It's... it's it's Sure, I do. I do. Um... I don't think as much because I, you know, cooking is a chore. Yeah, it, and I get that, and mm-hmm. I, I think of, I think of how naively I probably, you know, long ago used to say everybody should cook. Not everybody wants to cook, you know. I mean, it's like making your bed and cleaning your house. I mean, cooking is a chore, and mm-hmm. um, I fortunately love it. Yeah. And so mostly, when I get the blahs, it you know what's, the blahs are more around shopping. For ingredients. Planning, shopping, like all that stuff that kind of builds you towards that moment you turn the stove on, right? right? But my favorite is when I just open up the refrigerator or the pantry and don't think there's anything, you know, nobody's been to the market in a few days and or a week and I don't know what there is and I can come up with something based on just these little things. Give me an example of last time you, you just went into the cupboard, went into the fridge, made something that you were like, ah, that's pretty good. Um... What was well, you know, tacos are always, always a great thing. Tacos, you know, bean tacos, things like that. Um, a pasta. I mean, my favorite, the pantry pasta is like I. I mm-hmm. think we live on pantry pasta more than anything else. Um, and I've been switching it up. I used to it used to always be pantry pasta. Now it's more pantry, like the rest of us. You know, whole grains. So mm-hmm. I'll just. I mean, I, the other day I, there was a cauliflower cauliflower that was sort of floating around and so I sauteed the cauliflower with and I've been using celery instead of onions a lot now just cool kind of playing around with that and um just got a real hard you know brown on it and then threw some water in it again I've been using water instead of broth just to get this lighter flavor and sometimes you know broth um and then you know there was some lemon in there I mean preserved lemons if they're around things like that and oh just, sure you know, I love preserved lemons having that I love that in front with beans or with grains absolutely yeah so good I think cooking with water over stock is cool Andy Barragani was in the podcast a few weeks ago and honestly he made that point it's got me really thinking like water is a tool you don't always need that heavy stock when braising, for example, or when making a sauce, right? Absolutely. And I've come to, I don't want to say prefer it, but in certain instances, especially, you know, we're coming into spring and summer and, you know, it, there's a li- lightness around it and everything yeah. else can sort of shine a little bit brighter with the water. Yeah. And you, I mean, Judy Rogers forever ago said, you know, water's better than bad stock. It's true. And we work with a lot of bad stocks sometimes. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the Tetra Packs or the better than bullion sometimes is all we got. But sometimes right. water might actually be better than those guys. You know, you can make a fabulous risotto with water if you if yeah. you really build the flavor base. Or what I do if I have a mediocre stock and I'm doing risotto is I cut it, you know, by at least a half, if not two-thirds with water just to lighten it up. So you still get yeah. a little of that umami from the from – the, um, 
Or just add lots of cheese and it'll be fine. So that's the thing. You if you you gotta like obviously season to sure, taste. Absolutely. And part of that is actually adding an aged cheese, an umami into a water based, like a risotto, like a water based risotto versus a stock based risotto. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um you edited a compilation called uh it was titled The Hundred Fifty Best American Recipes, which must have been daunting. How the heck did you come up with this uh, list of the 150 best American recipes. I love that you brought that up. So that was a series that um, was it w- went for six, seven years every year, and I, it's um, it was Houghton Mifflin and the you know the best American crime writing, or best yeah. American food short writing, story, food fruit, uh, food writing, of course. Yeah. So the editors there thought, well, what if we did a best American recipe book? So we did one a year. Wow. And it was daunting, and ultimately untenable, which is why it stopped. And so before it ended, we did the 150, which was just hmm. a look back at um, every annual one with a few. So what we did, I did it with uh, Fran McCullough, mm-hmm. who is an um, incredible cookbook editor. And uh, we just read everything we could. We you know, got all the magazines. There were a lot more magazines then. Um, mm-hmm. we, the internet wasn't quite as robust, so that wasn't as overwhelming. You know, we would talk to the Remember, she got one from a UPS guy. You know, we would look at the back of packages. I mean, it was obviously we weren't looking at everything, you but couldn't we, were, possibly. we couldn't possibly. But we were just trying to spread as wide of a net as we could, um, and it was overwhelming. And then we would get this huge pile, and then like around September, October, start cooking. And it was due in January. So it was insane. It was an insane Okay, so I'm taking pause because this is kind of blowing my mind. So what I'm hearing is that you would each year comb the world for (laughs) recipes. And I'm thinking, okay, that's cool. It's like food media. You get to like actually consume a lot. I mean, it sounds like kind of a dream for me, like reading recipes all day, which I love. But then you just added this little wrinkle that you actually cooked everything yeah, but it wouldn't make the cut if we didn't That's cook it. That's wild. So you were actually testing all of these recipes. Man. Yeah, and, and Fran has a certain genius for spotting a recipe that stands out. And yeah. um, it, you know, there are a couple criteria that we were looking for. We were looking for something that was a new spin on an old classic. Um, there, the, the, My favorite sort of criteria was a recipe that no matter what you did to it, it still worked. Um, I remember mm-hmm. one year it was that macaroni and cheese that uh, was a French chef from New York, I think, that you you don't boil the pasta, you just soak it in milk or cream, milk oh, right overnight, on. or however, yeah, I think it's overnight, and then you bake it, and it just soaks up all that, and it's incredible. And Fran made that one, and she like drove it around before she baked it in the back of her car, and it sloshed all over, and it was still great. So, um, <laughs> Good story. So yeah, and then we would cook, and. Um, Remember, like Thanksgiving for those years was really rough because we were so on deadline then. Yeah. Um, and we would call them before we cooked them, but it had, yeah, it had to work. It had to really work. What made an American recipe? I mean, that's that's the question of the day. Obviously, when we look at like the diversity of our country and 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 the way food uh, is presented in media, but what made it? What makes an American recipe? Yeah, I think we were just borrowing the title from that. Best American series, of course, and we're going on that. I yeah. mean, the only thing that made it an American recipe was that we, as two, the two editors of the series, were based in America and sourcing our uh, recipes from things that were available to us in America. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty broad. It was broad, okay, yeah, loose. But it's not coming back though. This hundred and fifty. You know, American. it's funny, Matt. When I was thinking about it the other day, and it could come back in a very cool way, like it could be its own website. You know, it could be an ongoing project where instead of 
putting it in book form. There could be someone, a team of people who went through and just selected recipes. And, Sign me up. I, I feel I, like let's do it. It's. I mean, it's. there's so many – thinking about this a lot and there's just so many recipes out there and it's so hard to know which ones – work and which ones are worth trying. And right. I think, you know, we all, the, all the, everything that's popular continues to get more and more popular and rise to the top. And there's just, I, I know there's so much good stuff out there that's just not getting discovered or getting yeah. attention. And that's, yeah. It's exciting. I think we should, uh, we should pitch this as a sidebar about this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll get back to you. <laughs> My, what's your life like up in Vermont right now? you you live outside Burlington. So what, like, what is your, your, your life like? Are you, um, are you working on a new book? Are you like what's it like? What's happening right now? Well, it's almost getting to be spring, which is almost hallelujah. Yeah, there's no spring in Vermont, really. It, it kind of <laughs> it, the, the the winter drags on. But um, so I put in a some of my cold weather uh, vegetables last weekend, which was cool. really exciting. Um, I am not working on another book right now. I'm doing a little bit of you know freelance magazine work here and there, mm-hmm. a little writing work here and there, but no big book. Um, on the horizon, um, you know, life in Vermont is waiting for the ramps to be ready to go out and pick some. I love it. And uh, yeah, I live in the kind of in the woods outside of Burlington. And what a beautiful part of the country! I love Burlington. Yeah, it's funny. I never thought I'd end up in Vermont. I mean, I'm a city kid. I grew up, I grew up in downtown Buffalo. I lived uh-huh. in New York for a while. I lived in Paris. I never thought I'd end up being a country kid, but um, it works. It's a good place to be. Are you a skier? I am a skier. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, it's some amazing skiing up there. I skied on Sunday. Are you kidding me? You <laughs> skied on Sunday. Wow. No, wow. but that's silly. I mean, there's not. The skiing's pretty much over. But yes, I am a skier. And you yeah. have to be if you're up there because the winter is long and daylight is short. And so yeah. you need to have a reason to get outside where it's bright and white. Yeah. So I have to ask you this. We ask all of our guests on Taste Podcast if there was a dream cookbook mm. recipe that didn't necessarily have a, a deadline and there was really unlimited funds available as in no budget really given to you, what would that project be? I thought I might get out without this question because I know you ask it and it's such a good question. Okay, so I I have three. One would be – I see, I think the thing about cookbooks that's such – still – is that you can't uh, – uh, learning how to cook, it means being able to cook without recipes and a cookbook is filled with recipes. So right there yeah. is problematic. So somehow to bridge that, you know, that that step where you go from following a recipe to, to to cooking, to cooking intuitively. So that's that's one. I tried to do that as much. I mean, in all my books, I've tried to do that, and I really tried to put all that into all about dinner as well. Um, but the but the project I really would get excited about right now is to find a cook or a community of cooks who have a fresh take on on. I don't even know right now. It's still so – I'm still just trying to think about this. But a fresh take on food or cooking or how food relates to our lives or – and work with the, them or that person to amplify – I know how to put a book together by mm-hmm. now. But I'm not as interested in my food anymore. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you're thinking about collaboration. It sounds yeah. like, like that's what a collaboration is, but you're not a collaborator. That's not really your stock and trade, right? Yeah, but I love – doing that. So, so do it. I do that kind of behind the scenes. And then the third would be to write a historical fiction with a lot of food in it. Oh, that's really fun. But so that's like way down the road. Down that's, the road. I mean, you should do that. So my, you read some fiction? I, I, it's my candy. It's, yeah. my, uh, it's my sweet tooth is for fiction. It's wonderful. Yes. Molly Stevens, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Matt, thank you for having me. 
Here's my interview with Lorenzo Carcaterra. Lorenzo Carcaterra, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, I wanted to have you on the show. We, we talk to a lot of cookbook authors and we talk to a lot of uh, food writers, but we don't talk to too many fiction writers and screenplay writers. But I wanted to talk to you because I saw that you grew up in Hell's Kitchen in, in, in a neighborhood in New York City um, that has um, a lot of history to it. So I wanted to find out first off, like, what was your family household like growing up in Hell's Kitchen in terms of the food you were eating and cooking? Oh, I might as well have been living in Italy. Prior to Hell's Kitchen, up until the age of five, we lived in, I don't know how familiar you are with New York, but we lived in where Lincoln Center now is. <laughs> that was a all ghetto uh, tenements, rather. It was called Little Naples. So, for example, English is my second language. No one, no one around me spoke English. My mother, my mother lived in this country 35 years, never spoke English. So when they gave us money, which I don't think you can do today, they gave every family, I don't know what it was, two, three hundred bucks and told them you got to leave. We moved to Hell's Kitchen. So when I was five, we moved to Hell's Kitchen. But for my mother, it was still Italy. I mean, the food was, she only shopped at Italian grocers. She only cooked Italian food. I remember when I started going to grade school after the nuns uh, kindly taught me some English, I would bring like these sandwiches like eggplant parm or uh, zucchini and eggs and, you know, and kids, the other guys were eating uh, peanut butter and jelly, which I never saw. And it, so what my meal was alien to them, uh, peanut butter and jelly looked like, you know, I used to go home and, and I said, my, I see these kids eating. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's, uh, and we never had Wonder Bread. You know, they would eat Wonder Bread. We had Italian, you know, fresh Italian bread, which my mother would make or get at the grocery. So the food was all Italian, all Southern Italian. And, and my father was a butcher down at the 14th Street Meat Market. One of the perks of that job was at the end of the week, you got 10 pounds of free meat. Oh so my. while we had no money, we had a lot of food. And what he would do once a month, he would trade with a friend at the Fulton Fish Market, give him 10 pounds of meat and take five pounds of fish. So we had tons of food. And and everything was sort of on the, uh, on the arm. I mean, we never really shopped a lot because the we were down by the west side piers hell's kitchen was by the piers so whenever a boat came in if it was a banana boat somebody would uh it was swag somebody mm -hmm. would give you like a case of bananas but you know bananas go bad in like two days and you're suddenly given like 200 bananas so my mother would you know give banana to this neighbor that neighbor this neighbor and um so we ate really well we ate uh uh, I have no complaints on the food. It sounds like a montage in a film. Like, you know, you see, like, obviously, like, West Side Story comes to mind. But a lot of those early, you know, 60s and 50s New York movies where it's, like, open markets and bartering. And, exactly. you know, you know, it sounds like a really unique childhood. And and so when you when you saw the peanut butter and jelly from your friends, what um what were you thinking? Were you thinking that food was was foreign or were you actually swapping with them? At the oh no! Table. I did not want. I'm not giving up a. <laughs> I'm not giving up an eggplant farm for <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. So uh, no, I was curious as to what it was, and uh, you know, it seemed to me. I know it's a bizarre term. It seemed exotic. You know, I didn't know what you know what they could be eating. But uh, and they looked at me like you know. Uh, I remember I had a zucchini and egg sandwich, and one of my friends said, "Great day for zucchini and eggs." They had never seen it. <laughs> and somebody have a zucchini and egg and everything was a hero you know my mother never made like small sandwiches 
So evolving and and moving on from the period of the fifties in in like the Lincoln Center Upper West Side, we're talking about the modern Upper West Side. Um, you moved to Hell's Kitchen and you grew up there, and then you got older in New York. I just like I, I want to speak to you about the seventies in New York. Like it's an era that is captured in so many films and iconic films, and I feel like we don't talk about the food in Manhattan in the seventies. Why not? Why don't we talk about it? as much. Well, I think we don't talk about a lot of things in that period as much, but I think one of the reasons we don't talk about the food is it was at the time when it started evolving. Like, you know, um, I collect wine and my family had wine. You know, I have, I've, I've had wine in for, with my meal since I was four, you know, my mother would give me a little half a glass of wine with some water. Um, <laughs> but wine in, in back then was, you know, I didn't know a lot of people, you know, other than my family and my father's friends, some of them made their own wine and some of them bought their wines. And it was always in thick jugs, those big old jugs. And wine wasn't a thing like it is now. Now you have wine tastings, you have this and that. So I think food wasn't as crucial. It just became, I mean, remember in the seventies, Italian restaurants were in, you know, it wasn't like, um, you had a Mandacati's, you had a, uh, Donato's and some of these cool places you had, yeah. You know, the checkered tablecloth, the bottle of wine with the straw on it and uh, and pasta. You know, a lot of the meals that were served in the 70s that were called Italian, you can't get in Italy. Yeah, like spaghetti and meatballs, you don't see that. I mean, now you see it a little bit in some of the rest. I go to Italy a lot. You see it only because American tourists are there. But normally they don't serve spaghetti. Meatballs is a, uh, usually a side dish or a lunch or you have it with a salad, but you know, you don't have it the way we have it here. The pizza now used to get your own individual pizza, but now because again, because of tourists, American tourists going, they're starting to serve it in slices, which kind of takes away from the, you get your own individual pie in Italy. You don't get slices. <laughs> so I think the cooking has changed. Um, you know, when I was a kid, my mother made her own, everybody seemed to make their own thing. They, they would make their own my mother made her own pastas, her own bread, her own sauces. They canned their tomatoes. So everything that we ate was fresh. Yeah. It wasn't like we had canned food. And, you know, that was another thing. I'd go to my friend's house. I didn't have mayonnaise until I was in my 20s because that's not an Italian thing, you know. And um, <laughs> What was that first experience like when you had your first? I, I, I hate mayonnaise. <laughs> no well, offense to those who like it, yeah, but mm-hmm. – uh, but uh, my father, the only time we'd have, you know, quote, American food, he was a big baseball and boxing fan. So when we went to Yankee Stadium, he'd get hot dogs with mustard. And that was for us was American food. You know, and he so he kind of liked, uh, you know, he was more Americanized, obviously, than my mother. But he insisted every night that what what we would have for a meal was an Italian meal. And, you know, we ate pretty healthy, too. Like during the week, it would be lentils with pasta, uh, pasta f- and beans. You know, it was a, it was veg- it was for heavy ve- Southern Italian, heavy vegetables, heavy pastas, a, f- a lot of fish. And uh, yes, a lot of meat also, because back then, you know, everybody seemed to eat meat. So when you let's uh, let's talk about uh, your writing. So when you write about food in your fiction and screenplays. When you're writing about food, how do you how do you work through that scene? Um, what details are most important to you when you're putting food either at the center or somewhere around the peripheral? I like it to be uh, 
when somebody reads that, uh, as as my editor said, it made her, it makes her hungry just reading that section. So that I want to get across the flavor of it and the the uh, the aroma of it, and not so much. You know, I'll do some of the ingredients. I won't go into whole detail. You know, the like if yeah. uh, stuffed peppers, I'll put in uh, yes, breadcrumbs, anchovies, and capers. But I won't go into how long it takes to cook it and whether they're roasted or in the uh, grilled or in the oven. I just want to get a sense of the the aroma and the taste. I want to make you taste it without going into too much of the detail and what the ingredients and the time it takes to make it. Yeah, you don't want to get into the minutiae because that, that bogs down the story and you're moving quickly with crime and and suspense. But but still, um, give me one of your memorable food scenes that you've written in your, in your several – in your many novels um and your screenplays i think the uh my grandma in nona maria my grandmother was a great cook i mean what was interesting about her and i love doing this is no one ever saw her cooking we never saw nona cook yet if you just showed up at her home she'd bring out a platter of uh pasta puttanesca which is my favorite pasta it's it's a red sauce with um capers, anchovies, black olives, and uh, hot pepper, hot cherry pepper. And it's called puttanesca because uh, basically it means um, the call girls in Naples, it takes 10 minutes to make the sauce. So they would do it in between jobs, I guess. Yeah, uh, as, the, as uh, the legend goes about that as one. the legend yeah. goes. Yeah. And uh, uh, and so I loved, I loved that. I loved uh, her pasta with white clam sauce. I would sit there just just taking in the, I mean, you didn't even need to know what she was making you as you were walking down the, uh, pathway through the garden to get to her home. You just smelled. I mean, the aromas were, I mean, what I love about Italy and, and I loved about the neighborhood, uh, if you want to bring it a little bit back to Hell's Kitchen and I've put some of the cooking of Hell's Kitchen in my books is Hell's Kitchen was divided into four groups, Italians, Irish, uh, Hispanic, and Eastern European. And as you walk down the street, you get the smells of different cuisine hitting you you know i got to taste uh one of my best friends was from puerto rico i got to taste uh you know food from his island and and he got to eat at my mother's house so he loved my mother's cooking and i really started getting onto his 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 mother's cooking so it does expand food expands your world and that's one thing i try to get into my books if i do use a cooking scene um it also propels the scene it makes it move forward it's a more action if you know, if you and I are just sitting and having, uh, you know, just talking, it's kind of nothing's going on. But if we're having a glass of Brunello and a bowl of pasta with uh, uh, an anchovy sauce or a pasta with uh, uh, rigatoni with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mozzarella and some eggplant, that gives me something else to play with as a writer. And it gives you something else visually to picture that table. And I think it helps the, the move the scene along, both yeah. visually if you're doing a script and both um, – uh, on, in a book. Have you written any deaths that have a food component to it? You mean that I poison anybody? Poison or shot <laughs> in a restaurant? Yeah, or... I think I, uh, yeah, I shot, uh, I think in Gangster, a couple of novels, I shot somebody in a restaurant. But, you know, you want to avoid also, that's a staple of a lot of crime books. You don't want to repeat what other people have done. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, and I'd heard the stories about, you know, um, guys getting shot. You know, it's, it's famous that gangsters paul you know the when paul castellano got shot at sparks uh one of the a cop friend of mine says he said you know the cool thing about the mob they let him eat first and then they didn't kill him on the way in they kill him on the way out 
real gentleman's kind of sport there, the killing in the mob families yeah. in New York. I'll give him a meal. Let him have a meal before he goes. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I try to, uh, you know, I try to come up with cool ways if you got to kill somebody, um, kind of cool ways to kill them. Uh, it's usually uh, uh, bar scenes. Uh, in Sleepers, a guy died while he was eating. He got, I remember he got shot while he was uh I was in an Irish restaurant and he was having uh, uh, meatloaf. What a film. You were the executive producer of that film and you wrote the book. Um, tell me a little bit about the filming of Sleepers and you can catch that. I'll put in the show notes a link to Sleepers, which is available, you know, most. Oh, I think I was very fortunate to, that Barry Levinson was the director and I've done a few projects since with him. He included me as a, you know, a lot of people told me, you know, they're just going to take the book and you know, leave you alone. They're not going to pay attention to you, which, you know, I would have been fine with, you know, it's my book, their movie. But Barry from day one included me. And he asked the question that no director or producers ever asked me since. Um, the first time I spoke to him, he said, in the editing process, how many pages did you cut out? And I said, about a hundred. He said, do you have them? And I said, yes. And out of those 100 pages, I think we did six or seven scenes from the movie came out of those 100 pages. It was like going to script school with him. And he was very, uh, you know, he, you know, he called me about the casting. He called me about the, I was on the set a lot, even though I was on tour, I was going back and forth and, uh, I would have killed to get off tour just to hang on the hmm. set. But, um, and I did revisions, uh, um, you know, I wrote scenes, he would edit them and I'd send them back. And, and, and it was a great working relationship. And off of that movie, I got my first feature film to write, and I wrote for him, mm -hmm. and uh, and that led to a bunch of other work. Uh, so it was a great experience. He was a he's an a, he's an amazing casting director. I mean, you can't beat that cast. And no, you can't. Uh, and I've been friends with some of the guys. Uh, you know, it was Billy Crudup's first movie, and you know he's gone on to a terrific career. I think it was Ron Eldard's first movie as well. Oh wow, really? Oh no, I. That's like, you know, Billy Crudup, you feel, you feel uh, you know, almost famous is maybe his, his big moment. But, man, that's great that he was the first, that was his first film. Yeah. yeah, it was his first movie. He had done a play called, I believe it was called Arcadia, off-Broadway. Either Barry saw it or Lou DiGiamo, the casting director, saw it. And off of the play, cast Billy. For me, the most one of the most exciting things was Victorio Gossman because I was a big I'm a big Italian movie fan. Yeah, he's like the Gregory. He was the Gregory Peck of Italy, and what the brilliance of Barry is that here's a guy who's world. In fact, when the movie opened in Italy, Victorio, despite all the names, De Niro, Hoffman, and Pitt, it was yeah. Victorio Gossman's name above the title. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's telling. I mean, that you do mention uh, three, uh, you know, not so light names of uh, Brad Pitt. Right. Dustin Hoffman and and Robert Nero in your in your film, um, did you have any any interactions with those guys? Oh yeah, uh, I, I, any food, any food, and enter the end of the. Do you have any memorable meals? Breaking bread with the cast. Yeah, I would take them the Mandacati. We were filming outside in Queens. Mandacati's is my favorite. I think it's the best Italian restaurant in the city. It's in Long Island City. So we were filming a few blocks from there, and you know, on the set you usually eat from the truck. So I said to Barry, I said, you know, Mandicati's is just a few blocks from here. They'll happily deliver a bunch of food. So Barry said, this is great. So he sent some people. They put in his order. And I remember they were filming, you know, they soaked the street with water. It was supposed to be raining. So they had the hoses in the air and all that. And 
Billy and I'm sorry, Jason Patrick and Brad Pitt are doing their walk scene. And Barry, rather than look at the viewfinder, is eating and said, this is the best chicken with vinegar peppers I have ever had. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Meanwhile, the two guys are doing their scene and not knowing that, you know, little knowing that no one's paying attention yeah but um it was uh you know it, it was one of those crews you know you get lucky every once in a while it was one of those sets where you know and i think a lot of it is barry without yelling he's not one of those directors who yells or screams uh, you know has to prove that he's in charge you know he's in charge and that's that's that and um everyone got along everyone was treated with respect and class and um and you know we had a lot of laughs given that it's a dark movie it's pretty dark you i I would say you'd have to have some laughs on that set with the content of the movie being so and by far yeah by far the best guy to hang out with on one of those movies is dustin i mean dustin was uh i mean he made you want to write better i remember he left because every actor was in there for a short period of time he left, and I said to Barry, I remember I was talking, I said, you know, there's a scene I should have put in the book, and I wish was in the uh, in the movie. He said, what is it? You know, where the Dustin character, uh, why he takes the case, he has to meet with the Vittorio Gossman character to tell him to take the case. I said, that's missing. And Barry said, why don't you write it, and we'll see what's what. So over that weekend, I wrote like a seven-page scene. Barry and I played with it on that Sunday. Dustin flew back in because he loved the scene. And then he improvised a little bit. And it was like sitting there. It was like Barry had it, I think, on the second or third take. But we let them go for a few hours. Mm. They were having it was like two professional boxers just having a great time. It's fun. And Barry, uh, uh, Victoria would improvise. He watched. He started. He didn't improvise at first. Then he saw Dustin improvising. And then he started improvising. And it was just, uh, I think it's uh, one of the best scenes in the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely check out Sleepers. I'll link to it. I would like to hear about your your own food rituals or drink rituals when you're actually writing. Do you feel like you, you need a meal or a drink in hand when you're writing, um, when you're in that zone? No, I, I try to, only because when I was a Daily News copy boy, and Jimmy Breslin always used to say, if you even smell liquor, your writing's going to be horrible. And... Uh, now, I, I don't drink booze or heavy booze. I just drink wine. Mm-hmm. But even I'm, you know, even one or two glasses of wine, I think, will kind of change it. So I don't uh, – the, the wine is the reward for doing the work. So I'll do my pages and then, you know, do a workout and then shower and say, okay, now is the – now I can uh, – Now it's time for the Super Tuscan. Yeah. Now it's time to crack the wine. Or that wine. When you were working um, as a as a cub reporter, you know, did you ever come across um, chefs? You know, in that era, were you ever writing about food? I would try to get them into the restaurants I felt comfortable in. So, because I, I, my thinking was for interviews, if I was comfortable in it, they would be comfortable. Because you know, if, if there's like three or four restaurants where if everybody, if the owners know you, you know, they'll bring over the drinks. They'll, you know, they treat you nicer and. You get a quiet table. And years later, when I was doing uh, books and scripts, I would have at Mandicati's, I'd get a monthly, uh, the New Yorker did a piece about it. I would have judges, lawyers, cops, guys who are on the other end of the law. And I would invite them once a month to a round table dinner at Mandicati's at my tree. <laughs> and what it is, is you just sit back. And at first, they're a little shy. And then it becomes who can top this with the better story. And out of that, I got stories for three novels. Um, 
just by sitting back and listening. You couldn't tape him. When the New Yorker guy came in, it was a talk of the town piece. Mm -hmm. He put his tape recorder in the center of the table. And as this guy's telling a story about shooting somebody, they just took the tape recorder and threw it right out the window and continued the story. <laughs> and, uh, and I said to the guy, I said, man, you cannot tape. You got to, you know, either remember or just occasionally go to the bathroom and, you know, jot it down. But don't go to the bathroom too much because half this table then think you're doing cocaine and you're going to be in a whole other world of trouble. Yeah. So, um, <sighs> so you, you would host these roundtables with, with you know, cops. Um, and and, and, yeah, and a lot of whom were writers like Edwin Torres. I don't know if you're familiar with Judge no. Torres. Uh, he was a New York State Supreme Court justice. But he also wrote Carlito's Way and Q&A. Mm-hmm. And he's a great storyteller. I mean, the key for me was that they had to be great storytellers. Uh, Gonzo Gonzalez, who was probably one of the best undercover cops in the city ever. Uh, judge Leslie Crocker Snyder, who's a terrific judge. Uh, Sonny Grasso, who broke the French Connection case. Um, and then, you know, more people would come and, and uh, you know, they'd invite their friend of theirs. And, um, you know, then you'd invite some guys whose, whose names I rather not mention who'd show up. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, Mendicati's is neutral turf. So, you know, there's no going to nobody's going to get busted or anything. It's, it's, a, it's a night on the town for guys to eat. So I want to ask you, we ask all guests on the Taste podcast, uh, if you could write a book and have no deadline and have unlimited budget, it's your dream book project. But let, let's call it a cookbook or a food book or, or, a, or a reported story about food. Lorenzo, what would that book be? And I had unlimited pages to do it in. I let's, mean, I could let's, do let's say, yeah, why not? Let's say that. Let's a thousand go pages. I could do 1,200. I could do a Ken Follett book. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I would do all the great foods of, uh, of Italy. I would just go from the extreme north uh, right up to the, uh, the Swiss border all the way down to uh, Naples, Ischia, Sicily, Capri, and just do every, but not just the, the, the big meals that we've all, some of us all know, the little tiny things uh, that we don't know that Italians eat on a day-to-day. And, you know, I, I did do one recipe once for the mystery writers, but you got to do that. They, they put together a cookbook each mm-hmm. year. But, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do that minuscule, a quarter, a tablespoon of this and because the best chefs I know, um, Ida and Mandacati, she can't actually tell you how much salt she puts in that pasta. <laughs> she just knows how much to put in. But she wouldn't be able to write down, you know, a, a quarter of an ounce or half an ounce or a, a teaspoon. Uh, but that's what I would do and and, uh, and 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 mix the wines with it. Oh, of course. You got to visit the wineries. You got to visit the wineries. And uh, and then as you go from north to south, you know, the wines change. Uh you know, I've learned uh, through life and experience, like, you know, you go to Sorrento, the best wine in Sorrento is Marisa Cuomo wine to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd like to explore that more, like how she got to be the person, the wine of Sorrento, but not of Naples and not of uh, Rome. Uh, whereas in Ischia, the island I'm from, it's Dambra wine, mm-hmm. and which has a family connection with me. So I quite understand uh, why they, they're so well known in Ischia. But I like to find out, like, Biondi Santi. Uh, you know, I was very lucky that I got to cover Italy for the National Geographic Traveler. Uh, with My late friend Keith Bellows was the editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadly, that magazine's no longer around. But 
I mean, I got to uh, cover towns and cities and the cuisine, but he didn't want to be do it. He didn't want me to do it like a regular travel piece, like, you know, go here, go there, go mm-hmm. there. He wanted to do it, like get a sense of the place and of the food and of the people and of the wines they drink. And, um, and, and you know, and the, and the history behind it, what I would add to that book is the history of the cuisine. Southern Italy is the poorest section, obviously, of Italy. So the meals they made, they had no money, so they had to make do with things that normally you and I, if we grew up in the north, would not even bother and consider food. Like, for example, uh, uh, calamari, that's bait, mm-hmm. uh, basically. Uh, clams and mussels were not even considered delicacies. They were just thing, you know, things you'd find at the shore. Uh, sardines, anchovies, these, again, throwaway things that, that people would, and they took them and made them into meals. Um, I mean, pizza is the most, a pizza which was invented in Naples is a simple, it's a sauce, two pieces of cheese and some. Simplest food item, but the hardest to master, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I went to the very first pizzeria, the uh, first pizzeria in the world. Mm. Um, In fact, I remember years ago, I'll let you go with this. Years ago, a guy came over to me and said, I just ate the greatest pizza in the world. We were in Manhattan. I said, where? He said twentieth and sixth. I said it can't. Po- that's not possible. <laughs> it can't even be close to the best pizza in the world. He said, "No, this is the best." I said, "The best pizza in the world has to be in Naples. Everything else is like second. <laughs> so he said, "No." So he took me there, and you know, I tell you, it was fine. You know, it was pizza, yeah. but teach, teach, to each his own. Um, Lorenzo Carcatera, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>